welcome to the Sermons Podcast of Christ Bible Church in St. Paul, Minnesota. I'm Pastor Levi Secord, and I'd like to thank you for listening. Christ Bible Church exists to bring all of Christ into all of life, and in doing so, we glorify God. This podcast series is not meant to be a replacement for the local church. It is not meant to replace your regular gathering with Christ's people across Christ's earth. And so we encourage you to use these sermons to bring glory to God, to bring all of Christ into all of life, and to strengthen and encourage one another in his name. With all of that in mind, let us turn our hearts and our minds now to the preaching of God's word, and in it may we see and glorify and emulate our Savior. So we've spent the last two weeks uh, examining wisdom uh, for women and then wisdom for men. And with how royally messed up we are today with our understanding of men and women and then our own uh, sinful natures in general, it should be no surprise that when we bring those two together today through marriage that things can go very, very poorly. I think one of the most striking things about what Billy just read for us here is the, the juxtaposition there of those four or three verses. The statistics today are rather... sobering in our culture when we think about marriage. We know that about 25% of all children today grow up in single-parent homes. And that stat should be shocking to us because we know that that is about the most detrimental thing that can happen to a child. The number one predictor for the success of a child is not their race, it's not their income, it's not anything else than this. Do they grow up in a home with mom and dad, or not. We know this, it's rather unquestionable, and yet parents largely just don't care. The divorce rate in our country has been climbing ever since the sexual revolution and then the introduction of the idea of no-fault divorce. I remember I was having a a conversation with a group of pastors and they were like, you're against no-fault divorce? And I said, yes, every Christian should be wholeheartedly against the violation of a contract with no consequences whatsoever, especially one like marriage. You hear today that uh, 50 to 60% of marriages end in divorce in our country. And that's kind of true, but also not really telling the whole story. It's actually only about, and only, only about 40% of all first-time marriages end in divorce. But that number climbs each time someone gets remarried. 60% of all second marriages end in divorce, and about 73% of all third marriages end in divorce. And this should tell us something really, really clearly. I want you to stick with me on this. Because generally when two people get divorced, both spouses will say it was almost all the other person's fault. Then they go get remarried and get into the same problem again and again. This tells you that in most situations, though there are exceptions to this, it was not all his fault or all her fault, and you bring all of those problems right back into your next marriage, and you end up getting divorced again. People think that if they just change their situation and they find a a better spouse, it will make them happy. But really what ends up happening is same problems, same, because, well, you are the problem. Your sin is the problem. As a nation, we average about 1.3 divorces per minute every day. Around the clock. 
That means by the time I finish preaching this morning, there will be another 46 divorces in our nation. Despite what we know it does to our children, our society, and the church. And when we talk about it in the church, we even know that God largely opposes it, and people still do it anyways. So consider our divorce rate, 40-ish percent for first-time marriages, with the divorce rate of another nation, modern nation, the divorce rate of India. What do you think it is? Give it to you. One percent. What do they know that we don't? One percent. Clearly our marital issues are at least somewhat, but probably more than somewhat, exasperated by our cultural understanding of marriage today, how we approach it, how we approach family, happiness, and all these other things. Because the truth is, most people today get married because they want to be happy. And that's not entirely wrong. You should be happy in your marriage. I would like it for you to be happy in your marriage. But if you treat your spouse like their whole job is to make you happy, that's called selfishness. And selfishness and marriage, they don't go very well together. Enter the book of Proverbs. Like the rest of Scripture, the book of Proverbs has a very high view of marriage. But unlike the Hallmark Channel, it also has a very realistic view of marriage. And you can hear the tension in today's verses. I'll read them to you again. Proverbs 18.22 He who finds a wife finds a good thing and obtains favor from the Lord. Contrary to what you might think, God did not give you a spouse to torment or torture you. You have found favor from the Lord. This is an objectively good thing. But then you get to Proverbs 21. And Solomon feels necessary to tell you this twice. In verse 9 and 19. It is better to live in the corner of a housetop than in a house shared with a quarrelsome wife. Verse 19. It is better to live in a desert land than with a quarrelsome and fretful woman. So we have this very high view of marriage in Proverbs and then also this very realistic view of marriage. Solomon was writing to his son, so he's targeting and warning them against finding uh, bad women to marry. But I can tell you that there are the male counterparts of this as well. I've, I've seen them. And what we are saying here in the book of Proverbs is essentially this. Marriage will be one of the greatest things in your life or one of the worst things in your life. It will either be this fountain of blessing from the Lord or it will suck the life right out of you that you would rather move to the Sahara Desert and live all by yourself than to stay within it. And the thinking man and woman at this point should say, what makes the difference? What's the difference? Because no one gets married thinking that they're going to rather one day move to the Sahara Desert. And yet about 40% of our marriages get to that point. So I want to stress this to you as I stress it to you all the time, again and again in many, many different angles and forms. You are being lied to 
by so much of our society today, especially about marriages and relationships. Like you are being lied to again and again. And the fruit is there for you to see again and again. It is killing you. Like people will tell you, do this and it will make you happy and more miserable for doing it. So my advice is very, very profound. Don't listen to them. Don't do it. Sometimes we end up this way in, in Christian circles and people will be like, you know what, we, we tried doing marriage God's way and it, it didn't really work. This is where I have to check my sanctification. <laughs> um, think about the rank amount of pride thinking or saying something like that is. I tried this God's way, but it didn't work, so I'm going to do it my way. The arrogance. My, my response to that is, no, you haven't. You haven't. At least one of you haven't. And you refuse to listen to God, and so you're reaping thorns. And so today, we're going to look at wisdom for spouses, wisdom for marriage. Whether you're in a good marriage or a rocky marriage, the question is, is what should we do how do we get the most out of what God has blessed us with instead of it turning into a curse? If I'm in a rocky marriage, is there hope for me today? Yes, the gospel of Jesus Christ is more powerful than the sins you guys have committed against one another. If you will walk by faith and take simple acts of obedience, God loves blessing simple, small acts of faith. And so today I want to give us four pieces of wisdom for men and women, for spouses who want their marriages to be a blessing instead of a motivation to run away and escape. Discontentment is one of the main things in life we have to fight against. Discontentment in what God has given us is fertile ground for sin to grow in. Whether you're discontent with the house you have, the job you have, the children you have, the spouse you have, whatever it might be, we think that discontentment is our friend, our ally. That if I'm discontent, the problem is, is what, with what God has given me or what people are not giving me. We can say innocent comments, especially in marriage, or think these things to ourselves. I wish he was more like this. I wish she was more like this other person. And the more we meditate on such things, the more we turn them over in our head, the more discontent we get. And the more discontent you get, the more justified you feel in seeking the thing that you think will make you content. Just as you would not want your spouse to negatively compare you to someone else, you shouldn't do that to him or to her. You say, Levi, what are, you, what are you talking about here? One of the best things you can do in your marriage is to treat your spouse as a gift and not as a measuring stick of anything else. To not compare them to anyone else. I get this from Proverbs 5, verses 15 through 20. I've read this passage to you guys a few times, but there's so many different angles to this passage that we could look at. It's like a, a diamond that you hold it up to the light and you just keep seeing different facets to it. But listen to this passage in light of comparison and discontentment. Drink water from your own sister. Flowing water from your own well. Should your springs be scattered abroad? Streams of water in the streets? 
Let them be for yourself alone and not for the strangers with you. Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth, a lovely deer, a graceful doe. Let her breasts fill you at all times with delight and be intoxicated always in her love. Why should you be intoxicated, my son, with a forbidden woman and embrace the bosom of an adulteress? Discontentment and comparison are generally the first steps towards adultery. Solomon writes to his son here and he says, don't long for, dream for, or compare, or be discontent because of the well that you have. And I'm aware, and this is why I picked this one to go first, I'm aware that when I preach on marriage in a message like this, that it could fuel discontentment in your hearts. Because it's not just real people that can, you can compare your spouse to. It's a standard you could compare them to and become very, very discontent. And thus, we can start to treat our spouse as if he or she needs to have a form of perfection in order to satisfy me. And that is a form of perfection that you yourself would never hold yourself to and would never be able to live up to. The truth of the matter is, the longer I live, the longer I see this in my own heart and in others' hearts, we are very, very, very good and gifted at excusing our own shortcomings. And we are very, very slow to do the same for anyone else. And so a message like today can feed a wandering or discontent heart. I've seen it before, that if you address marriage the discontent spouse feels justified in how their spouse isn't living up to the Christian standard. That is not my goal today. One of the most important teachings in Christ offers us for personal holiness and for life in general is in one of those passages that is most often just misused. It's the log and the speck passage. Don't judge. What Jesus gets at there is that you have to start always with judging yourself first. Like when we hold up the standard of Scripture that this is what a husband should be and this is what a wife should be, me as a husband, my first joint or my first act should not be like, wow, my wife doesn't live up to that at all. My first should be like, where am I not living up to this? Where do I need to be better? Because that brings with it a spirit of humility. Solomon's solution here is to view your spouse as yours, as your well, your springs, to be drunk deeply from, and for you to be satisfied in your spouse because they are a gift from God. You are not to compare your husband or your wife to anyone else. You are not to view them as a project that he or she just needs to get it together a little bit more and then you will be happy. Guess what? If that's how you function, you will never be happy because they will never be perfect and they will need to get the next thing together. But rather, we are called to treat our spouse as a gift from God, a sign of his blessing. Solomon hits this point in his other book, Ecclesiastes 9 verse 9. He says, enjoy life with the wife whom you love all the days 
of your vain life that he has given you under the sun, because that is your portion in life and in your toil at which you toil under the sun. This is what God has given you. This person is a gift, first and foremost. That does not mean that he or she is perfect or never needs to change anything. But it means that you operate from a different foundation. Grateful. It may not always feel like you should be grateful, but you should be. And so the command in Proverbs 5 comes to us like a knife. Enjoy your spouse as a gift for who he or she is. Those original things that you found attractive in them, magnify those things in your hearts instead of the ways in which they disappoint you. Verbally praise your spouse for those things. Encourage them. Delight in them fully. Be intoxicated with one another. And you cannot do those things if you are spinning around in discontentment or you're comparing them to something else. There's a fundamental difference of posture for when we approach one another as gifts and object of delight versus disappointments who aren't living up to our standards. Second, to be married is to be married to a sinner. Even more than that, it is to be a sinner married to a sinner. This means the question is not if you will sin against your spouse, but when, and not if they will sin against you, but when. And even beyond that, sometimes, as finite human beings, it's not even sin, we just disagree over two different paths that we can't tell which one is better. How are we to deal with conflict and sin in our marriage so that it doesn't pile up and make us want to run for the desert? I want to cover two ways to address conflict found in Proverbs. And undergirding both of these is this. Don't be the quarrelsome wife or the quarrelsome husband. What do I mean by that? Don't go looking for offense. Don't be living on a hair trigger. Don't be anticipating being offended. I think one of the ugliest things, and I know many of you would agree with me on this, one of the ugliest things in modern discourse today is the woke phenomenon. What is this woke phenomenon? Well, it is really people who are trained to take offense at everything. People who are always offended. And we even have a word for it. Like They go looking for things called microaggressions. Whatever that means. They take people's words and they twist them and they give them the worst possible meaning and then they get all up in a fever pitch and are offended and act like they have a right to be offended no matter what. I want to be clear here. There are certainly times in this life to be offended. If you can hear the reports of what Hamas did to innocent Jewish people and not be offended, there's something wrong with you. That's not okay. Ever. But being offended in and of itself is not a virtue. And the way this is manifested today mostly just shows how immature and ugly we have become. And what should strike us is that many in the church who rightly look at this and we say, yeah, yeah, don't, don't do that. They then act like that in their marriage. <clears throat> like, are you a microaggression seeking Karen in your marriage? Oh, you offended me again. 
There's nothing you can do to make up for it. You will always be the oppressor. Don't be woke out there. Don't be woke in your marriage. So instead, we need to deal with conflict God's way. In one way we are given here in the book of Proverbs, we find in ver- or chapter 15, verse 1, we read this. A soft answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. A soft answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. And quite honestly, how many of our fights would just never happen if we memorized and lived out this verse? Your spouse comes in, they're a little upset about something. You take it the wrong way. And instead of responding to anger with a soft answer, you just jump right in both feet. How many times when someone is upset, we lash out in kind, either externally or internally. This includes just shutting down and giving them the cold shoulder. So we're back into the basic of Christian ethics. You are personally responsible for your actions at all times. Even and especially when you are wronged. Contrary to wokeness, being wronged, it does not give you the right to do whatever you want. It is better to be wronged than to do wrong in return. This is what it means to turn the other cheek. This is what it means to go the extra mile. And so if you want your marriage to be a battlefield, then respond to your spouse's anger with your own anger. You will feel justified in the moment. It will feel great in the moment. But one day you're going to want to run for the wilderness. It is the glory of a husband or a wife to know that you can respond to anger softly. And indeed, you're commanded to. I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, Levi, this will just make me weak. This will just let the other person walk all over me. No, it doesn't. It takes a tremendous amount of self-control and personal strength to turn the other cheek. Was Jesus strong or weak when he went to the cross? When they beat him, when they spit on him, when they mocked him, and he could have called down all the angels of heaven in one. Unless you enjoy wrath and anger multiplying in your marriage, then you need to learn this simple thing. A soft answer turns away wrath. Unless, of course, you want to spend the rest of your time fighting. The second piece of wisdom for conflict resolution is Proverbs 17:9. Whoever covers an offense seeks love, but he who repeats a matter separates close friends. Whoever covers an offense seeks love, but he who repeats a matter separates close friends friends. To cover an offense instead of repeating it is to act in love. It is to forgive. This verse speaks of doing so among close friends. That a close friendship has to have as a main part of it the ability to cover offenses with one another. Why? Again, you're both sinners. And marriage is so much more than just a close friendship. As a marriage of two sinners, couples must learn how to deal with their own sin and the sin of their spouse. This means first that when you are the sinner, you need to be quick to go and confess and repent. And when you have been wronged, you need to be quick to cover it, to forgive it. When you pledged before God and your community to love one another in good times or bad, that includes forgiveness. 
through this, our entire outlook has to change. We have to realize that forgiven people forgive others. I think Peter captures this, um, our heart, our bad heart attitude, when we are perpetually wronged in Matthew 18, 21. Peter comes to the Lord and he says, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I must forgive him? As many as seven times? Now, you know this passage, but Peter thinks he's being generous. He's like, Jesus, I'll forgive him up to seven times. He wants an exact number. That's, that's when you know you're falling into an unforgiving and legalistic heart. Tell me exactly how much I need to forgive someone. So Jesus responds, I do not say to you seven times, but 70 times, seven times. Now that's not an exact number either. Jesus is saying, you're going to need to forgive far more than you ever thought you should forgive. And you need to forgive completely. And this is then when Jesus launches into a parable about the unforgiving servant. Now, you probably know the parable well, but the servant owed an insurmountable amount. He could have worked his entire life and never paid back his master, and his master was about to sell him into slavery so that he could pay off the debt. But this servant falls down before the master and says, please forgive me. And so the master removes his insurmountable debt. The same servant then goes and finds those who owe him a very small debt. They do the same thing. They fall down on their knees and they say, please forgive us this debt. He says, nope, you're going to jail. And this is what Jesus says to that. Then his master summoned him and said to him, you wicked servant. I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should not you who have had mercy also on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also my heavenly father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. Jesus' point here is one of the most hauntingly clear points in scripture. It is that you have been forgiven so much and if you do not forgive, God ain't going to forgive you. I know how marriage can get. I know that the little sins can pile up and they can seem all-consuming. And you can feel very justified in being bitter and not forgiving. The warnings here are not given on accident that your marriage could devolve into such a way that you want to run to the desert. But God has given a prescription as to how to deal with these things. Confess your sins and forgive their sins. And if you do not get that God has forgiven you far more and that he's been far more patient with you than you will ever be with anyone else in your life, then you don't get the gospel. Not even a little bit. Peter got this. Because Peter then writes in 1 Peter 4, he asks Jesus this question in the Gospels. Here's the mature um, apostle looking back at this. 1 Peter chapter 4. Love covers a multitude of sin. The Bible has a lot to say about love and forgiveness. Love covers sin. Love bears with one another. Love keeps no record of wrongs. Are you keeping a record of wrongs? Then you're not acting in love. And so to deal with your conflicts in marriage, you must learn to truly forgive, to truly confess when you sin, 
and to do this even in the difficult relationship of marriage. Levi, why is it so difficult? Because this is as close to a person as you can be. If some, if some random person walks by me on the street and calls me a loser, I'll be a little ticked. <laughs> Family called me a loser. That's going to hurt a little bit more. The closer you get to someone, the more they can hurt you. And the more you need to be able to forgive. And so forgiveness in the human vein does not mean there are no consequences. It doesn't mean that if there is a major sin that you should just ignore it and not seek help. That is not what we're getting at here. But we're talking about our disposition that you must have towards one another. And that disposition is this. Love covers a multitude of sins. For you will sin against your spouse and your spouse will sin against you, and you both need Jesus. And through forgiveness, a marriage can be transformed into the blessing that God intends it to be. And if you will not forgive, your marriage will not last. It really is that simple. The author and pastor uh, Emerson Egrets put it this way when speaking about marriage. He says, nothing is easier than judging, nothing is harder than forgiving, and nothing can reap more blessing. Nothing is easier than judging, nothing is harder than forgiving, and nothing can reap more blessing than forgiving. It's natural to find fault, but it is supernatural to forgive. What kind of marriage do you want? The next piece of wisdom is found in Proverbs 17, verses 13 through 14. This is the idea that you should trust your spouse more than your interpretation of your spouse. If anyone returns evil for good, evil will not depart from his house. The beginning of strife is like letting out water. So quit before the quarrel breaks out. We have here a situation where strife comes into a house and it is like the opening of a floodgates. And these two verses are, are stacked upon each other for a very important reason. What tends to happen is that we open the floodgates and then that will not depart our house. So if you do not deal with conflict God's ways, if you start to interpret the actions of your spouse through the worst possible lens, this will not depart your house. We already know what we're going to think about what he does or she does next. So we think we can return evil for good and the quarrels break out and the striving never ceases. The truth is, is when a person is wronged or when they are hurt, they are far more likely to interpret things badly. Maybe you've never done that. Maybe you've never misinterpreted or maybe you've never been misinterpreted by your spouse. I doubt it. But this is something we have to reckon with. When we are on a hair trigger, when we already know what the spouse is going to do in the worst possible light, then there is nothing uh, that will help you with your conflict. Let me put it to you a different way. We, we stress this in, in premarital counseling, that statement. You must trust your spouse more than you trust your interpretation of your spouse. 
conflicts pile up, right? you start to interpret everything through the conflict. And somebody does something neutral or even good, and you just swat it away. And we then start to trust our interpretation of someone more than the person themselves. And that only leads to death. Both husband and wife need to operate from a basic disposition of goodwill and trust. I wholeheartedly believe that Emily intends me good. She believes I intend her good, even though I'm not the best at showing it sometimes. But if you operate from the interpretation that I think he or she intends me bad all the time, you're just going to be spiraling down, 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 down. Finally, and last, we'll turn quickly to Ephesians chapter 5. It's hard to talk about the biblical view of marriage without at least taking a pit stop in Ephesians 5, because here God explains to us through the Apostle Paul his meaning, his purpose of marriage. This is God saying, this is why I created marriage, and this is how marriage should function. And God tells us that the mystery of the one flesh union points to Jesus Christ and his church. In short form, marriage points to the gospel. It says something about Jesus Christ and what he has done. And this means that every marriage in this room is dripping with God-given meaning. God has established marriage, one of its main purposes, to point to something else. To point to Christ. So contrary to what some evangelicals say, this does not mean that your marriage should point to the gospel. It means that it does. This is baked into the project. It is inherent to the institution. God has designed marriage to point to Christ. And so the question is not, does my marriage present the gospel? But rather, what gospel is my marriage pointing to? A true one or a false one? Like Your marriage preaches the gospel to your children, to your neighbors, to your church, to the world. Is it preaching a true gospel or is it preaching a false gospel? Is it preaching one of love or is it preaching one of, of judgment? Is it preaching one where, where love and respect and grace are earned by works or where they are freely given? One where the husband loves, though imperfectly, like Christ, showing that Christ loves us that way? Or one where it paints a picture of Christ where he's only critical and demeaning. One where the wife respects and honors her husband, as the church should Christ, or where her attitude and actions communicate that Christ is unworthy of respect. Your marriage will do one of those things. And so the purpose of marriage, the call of marriage, is not to seek yourself or your own happiness. It is a call the same as the gospel. The call of the marriage is for the husband and the wife to come and die for others. This is one of those crazy things the Lord has baked into the universe. I was reading an article this week about a Harvard professor. He wrote a book on, on how to be happy. And uh, as far as I can tell, he's not a Christian. But he's like, we've done all this research. 
And this is how people are happy. And one of the things he says, that one of the main ways you can be happy is to not make your life about being happy. One of the main ways you can be happy is to invest your life in faith and family and serving others. I'm like, oh my goodness. I've been saying that for years. Like, yeah. It's there. It's in raw data because God has baked it into the universe. But world and society and culture is telling you, no, actually what will make you most happy is to be a selfish, self-centered little person. It doesn't work. You will be miserable. And people are miserable. The difference is Christ in knowing him. The call of marriage is the husband is to lay down his life for the spouse or, for his, or lay down his life for his wife and his children. And the wife is to lay down her life for the husband and the children. And when you do that, you know what happens? You don't make happiness your altar. Happiness comes with it. Like I want your marriages to be a source of God's blessing and happiness in this world for that is how God has designed it. But in order for that to happen, you can't make it about it being a blessing and your source of happiness. Know Christ, be washed by him, obey his commands, model his love and sacrifice, especially to those closest to you. Live out the mercy and grace Christ has bought with his own blood. And when you do so, such a marriage is life-giving and beautiful beyond anything else in this world. And let me say this too. That's not just reserved for people who are super Christians. That should be the standard. If there are any of us who follow Christ, then we must do what he says. Solve conflicts as he has ordained it. Love one another as he has commanded it. Lay down your lives for one another as he has commanded and modeled. To refuse to do these things will make you that spouse that would make someone else want to live in the desert. It is to turn your marriage into death instead of life. But those who will lay down their lives, pick up their cross, follow after Christ... They will be blessed. Delight in your spouse. Love them sacrificially. Follow Jesus. This is God's gift to you and a sign of his favor. Build your house upon the rock that is Christ and his word, and you will be blessed. Let's pray. Lord God, we know that if you do not build the house, we labor in vain. And so, Lord, I ask that the many houses represented here would not build by their own might, by their own hands, by their own faulty wisdom, but that, Lord, they would build their lives and their houses upon the rock that is Christ Jesus. We confess that as husbands, as wives, as single people, as children, as widows and widowers, that we are sinners. And we cannot do this except by your grace and by your spirit. But Lord, that is not a flimsy hope, but a sure hope. That your grace is sufficient. Your spirit is powerful enough. So Lord, bless the families of Christ Bible Church. May they see their marriages and their families as a blessing from heaven above. And may our homes radiate the hope of the true gospel of Jesus Christ. It's in his name we pray.
Thank you for listening to this message from Christ Bible Church. Remember, this world is dripping with meaning because Christ created it, He sustains it, and He is reconciling it all to Himself. Now go and live out that glorious truth.